Welcome to another episode of Dr. Doctor, the award-winning radio show and podcast featuring your physician hosts, Dr. Tom McGovern and Dr. Andrew Mullally, where we and our guests discuss relevant health-related topics from an authentically Catholic perspective. Today, our guest will be heard across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Joining us for the seventh time will be the popular Dr. Kevin Majors, a psychiatrist at Harvard who has been one of our most popular guests because he so clearly explains the relationship of our faith with that of medicine in treating practical psychiatric and psychological problems. Again, he's going to provide easy to understand actions we can take to improve our mental and emotional lives. Yeah, Tom, you know, during the pandemic, many people in our circles have experienced increased anxiety and have benefited from listening to Kevin's previous episodes. I've talked to several people. I keep pointing them back to those episodes. In in April of this year, actually, Kevin and Sharif Yunus were co-founders of the website OptimalWork.com, and they actually launched a podcast in April of this year called The Golden Hour. If you are experiencing, as a listener, any types of mental or emotional challenges at this time, who's not, we highly recommend (laughs) listening to these 20-minute podcasts. You know, with my schedule, I only have time for three different podcasts on my podcast app. I have Dialogues in Dermatology, which helps me with my patient care. I listen sometimes to Bioethics on Air from the National Catholic Bioethics Center. And now in the third location on my podcast screen is The Golden Hour with our guest today, Dr. Kevin Majors. There are other podcasts you should be aware of with the name Golden Hour on them. So make sure you listen to the one with Dr. Majors, and it's an unusual spelling of Majors. It's M-A-J-E-R-E-S, and it's through the website OptimalWork.com. And today, Kevin is going to tackle uh, the topic of emotions. What are they? Where do they come from? And what good are they? During the pandemic, most of us have been experiencing more and stronger emotions than usual. And those of us members of the human race known as men with the Y chromosomes, (laughs) we're usually less inclined to understand, value, or use emotions in a beneficial way compared to the other half of the human race. Who we refer to as... Uh, the superior half, the women. <laughs> Those <laughs> good women. I hope my wife's wives, Yeah, we don't deserve them. They're so good for us. So there is a lot of information we want to glean from Dr. Majors. We don't want to belabor the first segment of this show because we know he has so much to say. And even though we have questions prepared, he always comes up with things I never anticipated that I want to hear. So we want to allow time for that, which means it's time for the medical trivia question of the day. So it's going to deal with emotions. It's going to deal with the lack of one. There is a rare genetic condition known as Erbach-Wiethe disease or lipoid proteinosis and hyalinosis cutis. It's just one of those long words that nobody remembers, although we had to learn it in dermatology. Patients with this develop dry and scarred skin with these unusual bumps along the eyelids and on the face where the skin gets thicker. But It also affects the brain because maybe you didn't realize it, but when you're a little baby, actually an embryo, there are three different layers of skin or of skin, of tissue, the endoderm, ectoderm, and mesoderm. And the ectoderm gives rise to skin, hair, teeth, nails, and the nervous system. So that's why a lot of these genetic conditions involve both brain and skin. So in some of these patients, they develop calcification on both sides of the brain in an area that we've talked about on this show before called the amygdala. After the amygdalas calcify in these patients, they do not experience one particular emotion. The question, which emotion do they not experience? You're going to have to stay with us till the end of the show. But before that, you've got a lot of good information coming from Dr. Kevin Majors about emotions here on Dr. Doctor from the virtual studios of Redeemer Radio. Welcome to our special guest interview on Dr. Doctor today about emotions. How can they help me instead of hurt me with Dr. Kevin Majors? Kevin, born and raised in Minnesota, went to college at University of Dallas, med school at UT Southwestern Medical School in Dallas, and then a fellowship at the Beck Institute of Cognitive Therapy. For the last decade, he's been on faculty at Harvard Medical School, teaches cognitive behavioral therapy to psychiatrists and training, among many other things. Kevin, welcome back to your seventh episode of Dr. Doctor. (laughs) Great to be back, Tom. Very simple. What are emotions? Emotions are simply what in the kind of the Thomistic literature is called passions 
which means they're just the, your your psychological response to something that you're perceiving. And that's it. So the emotions, you know, if, if you're experiencing something that you love, you know, then, you know, you get these positive emotions, joy when it's present, desire or craving when it's absent. If it's something you don't love, something, you know, then you could experience fear that it's going to be approaching or aversion or sadness if it's there. But it just has to do essentially with, you know, how you respond to the presence or absence of what you love or don't love. And where, where do they come from? They're not external, but they're caused by external things. Exactly. They're really responding to your, your own thoughts and your, you know, your imagination. It's really your perception. So if you, you know, have trained yourself to see something as a threat, you know, then as soon as you experience that thing, you experience fear because that's the emotional response to threats. So always you're responding to some the, the active part is thoughts, images, memories, things like that. The passive part's the emotion itself. And where does the emotion take place? Is it in the body or the soul? It's a composite. So the, the emotions are part of the sensitive soul. And so it's the joint body and soul doing it. So that means that we emotions are open to, to deliberation. They're open to the guidance of reason, but not forced control. It's not, emotions are not like, you know, you can move your arm whenever you want to move your arm. You can move your, you know, so those are under what Aristotle called despotic control. They just do if everything's working. They just do what you say. Emotions are under what he called political control. You can persuade <laughs> yourself and you do that by accepting the emotion and committing to the shaping action. And the more you do that, the less the emotion gets or the more it gets, depending on whether you're wanting it to grow or not. So if you're with someone you love, the more you let your attention rest on them and appreciate them, the more you actually feel the love. Then if there's something that you fear, you know, but you know that you need to face up to it, you accept the fear and then commit to the more brave action of facing up to it. Now, sometimes in psychologic parlance, they talk about flooding somebody. Um, is that part of flooding where you just keep facing something unpleasant and then you learn to get over it or that it's not as big a deal as you thought it was? That's So anytime you're helping someone face a fear, you're doing what's called an exposure. Exposure. And there are two strategies for doing exposures. One is flooding, where you go maximal because it's safe, and but still it's maximal. And then the, <laughs> the, the other is systematic desensitization. So if you're afraid of heights, you know, systematic, you might start by stepping on a little step ladder, and then you you equilibrate to that, and then you go to a higher ladder. You know, flooding would be you go to a balcony on a tenth floor, you know, and lean over the edge while saying, I'm going to fall, I'm going to fall. <laughs> you don't do that with your patients, do you? No, I don't. Uh, but, <laughs> but I do try as much as possible to combine those two usually. So I try to go as maximal as the person is comfortable doing. And the nice thing is that the, the higher you go, and sometimes really the faster the process is, because yes. you see that there's nothing wrong here. But would you say that... Um... A misunderstanding of emotions leads to a lot of psychiatric distress. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and what happens is the main misunderstanding people have is that they feel that the emotions, one, are permanent. Ah. And two, are who they actually are. They get over-identified ah. with their emotions. We are our emotions. Oh, that's beautiful. You know, one of the things that I think comes up in common parlance or thought is that emotions are bad because some people react to them badly, right? But they're not bad enough in and of themselves. No, yeah, exactly. They're they're just information that your system is detecting at a super fast speed. And so it doesn't have words, so it puts it into a feeling. So you could be aware with this automated, say, threat detection system, you know, that there's something dangerous there before you're consciously aware of it, but you start to feel the fear. Emotions are meant, it's just part of your system telling you that something you love is there or something that you fear is there. And so, so and you get the, and you feel the response of it. As, but if you love things, then you are going to fear losing them. 
as long as there's love in your life, there's emotion in your life. We wouldn't want to live without love. And so we wouldn't want to live without emotion. There's okay. a lot of pushing, I think, for, for some people to just push emotions away that they're always bad. But what, what are some of the things emotions could be good for? Emotions are essentially energy. And so they, in the one hand, if you're, say, afraid of something like a performance situation, what you're experiencing as anxiety is very much tied into adrenaline, which is what allows you to perform at your very best. So the, if, you, if you aren't trying to, like, if you're not welcoming the adrenaline and striving for a positive goal in your performance, there's nothing for the adrenaline to be used on. And so it just kind of burns in the chest unused. It's like a car revving in neutral. Ah, I like that. But then if you have a positive goal that you're strategizing and you're proceeding step by step, then you get this surge of adrenaline as a performance enhancer. And but so, you get it as a performance harmer. I heard you say on one of your wonderful podcasts that it's also the same thing that drives a different emotion, that of anger. Yeah. So it's the fight or flight response. So if you're viewing something as a threat that needs you need to fight or flee from, then, you, then it goes to your periphery and your muscles get ready and your heart rate goes up and you're, you're getting ready to fight, ready to run. So as long as you are welcoming it consciously, saying, ah, oh, this is great. I'm going to use the adrenaline to really perform at my best. That flip puts you suddenly into adrenaline working centrally on your brain. And then it raises your IQ. It improves your reasoning. It improves your fluency. And it gives you a sense of confidence. So what determines whether or not the adrenaline leads to anxiety or anger? Whether this is something to be fought, is a judgment you make actually, to be, is this something to be fought or something to flee from? Ah, and so, so fleeing anxiety, fighting is anger. Yeah, exactly. But they're really at heart the same thing. There's a there's a threat that is coming closer, and you have to, and so you feel like you have to respond in some way. And then you've distinguished anger, which would be another emotion, from frustration. Is frustration an emotion, and how is it different from anger? Frustration is, in some ways, less than an emotion, because it's not so much about the deeper things that you love. It's frustration is more thwarted satisfaction. And so whenever you are have there's something that you just want, like say something you really just want to get done, and then it's delayed, or something you really want to purchase, and then it's not available. Well, thwarted <laughs> satisfaction causes frustration. The difference is frustration very much is a left brain kind of thing. And satisfaction is a left brain kind of thing. And when people are living their lives dominated by, you know, their appetites, then anything that satisfies the appetite they think is good and they get satisfied and anything that frustrates the appetite leaves them feeling frustrated. So, so since we don't have the Thomistic background that you do, or many of our listeners don't, describe exactly what Aquinas means when he says appetite. So it, the appetite is essentially your desire for the good in that other thing. So that, you know, if you are thirsty, you know that you need water to survive. So then you have thirst is really a primal appetite, a natural appetite for water. Uh, there's a, so these, you have these natural appetites. Like, so if you're starving, then you have a natural appetite for food. And that's, that natural appetite is called hunger. Uh, there's another level, though, of appetites that he calls sensitive appetites. Those are psychologically molded appetites. So if you have, let's say, a particular craving for Cinnabon because you have <laughs> such positive associations with it and, yes. and you love the taste, well, then you could have the natural appetite of hunger underlying, and then that gets kind of transformed into the psychological appetite of the craving for Cinnabon. You know, in a previous episode, you, you had mentioned that anxiety is prayer waiting to happen. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we talked about how anxiety can lead us to make a loving choice to act in the present moment. What are some of the good outcomes that are waiting to arise from anger? We usually think anger is always a negative thing uh, and maybe even frustration. What, what are some of the goods that could come from, from those emotions? So anger in itself is... Uh, it's, a, 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 it's an appetite, a desire to teach a lesson to someone. 
And so it's always wanting to teach. The, the, the tragedy of anger, in a sense, is that it's not a very good teacher. <laughs> so that even though you feel like you have to teach someone this lesson, it's not good at assessing, does the person really need to hear this or know this? You kind of want to teach them right now. <laughs> exactly. And then and it gives you a sense of urgency, which also isn't helpful. Now, there are many times when, when the anger is justified and you do actually have to, in some way, think of how to teach the other person. And so anger can sometimes point the way to things that need to be addressed. And so it can help you make a commitment to serve the other person by addressing those things. But doing it to satisfy the anger will make you an angry person. People think that anger is somehow best vented. Like it's better. Yes. And, and, and that's, in fact, why there's, I don't remember the author of it now, but they're one of the original cognitive type books, cognitive therapy books on anger is called Anger, the Misunderstood Emotion. And this is the central thing is that people misunderstand it. They think it's made better by, by venting it. Doesn't it make it worse? It makes it worse. So it's just like giving into any craving. If anger is this kind of craving to, to teach a lesson, and then every time you get angry, you give into that craving, what you're actually doing is feeding that appetite. And so it gets stronger and stronger and gets triggered more and more easily. So we have to have the deliberate awareness that we are experiencing anger so that later when we're not experiencing anger, we can then address whatever has to be addressed. It's like parents with their children. You might want to teach them a lesson that they have to know, but you don't want to ever do any discipline when you're actually angry because you're just not good in that moment of choosing the right way, choosing the right strategy. Anger doesn't help you in that sense, in the immediate sense, to really strategize the most wise path to teaching it. But, so what's the best thing to do in that moment of anger? Actually, the best thing, I think, is this one little question. How angry am I? And if you ask yourself that question when you're angry, you realize, okay, on a scale of 0 to 10, you give it a number. At that moment, you're not going to act on it. You are no longer being subjected to your own anger, forcing you to do anything. Now you've made it the object of your awareness, and you hold it. And you realize you can have the anger and not act on it. So it's like, you know, St. Paul says, you know, be angry, but sin not. You can be aware of the anger. You can be aware that it's there. And then, but then don't give into it. But it's also best then that you find a way to address it as soon as you've calmed down. You know, this reminds me of a book and I'm looking for the title of it, but the subtitle is negotiating as if your life depended on it. Um, never split the difference. And in the book, they talk about a strategy. Are you familiar with the book? No. It, it's written by um, a former CIA director of international terrorism hostage negotiation. And so he talks about using language that helps take something out of the amygdala and putting it into the prefrontal cortex, taking it from emotion and putting it into reason. And I think that's exactly what this little question does. How angry yep. am I? Because then it yep, makes that's it exactly it. So I love seeing this verified by you. Yes, exactly. Yeah, you know, it's just like when people uh, when when you start like like being curious about what you're feeling, you start turning it as something that can be measured and understood, or or even labeled just to label the emotions. A lot of people really have no practice labeling what they're feeling, and it all gets mixed up together. So, but learning how to distinguish, how to label, uh, that does put you in a different frame of mind. Like if you find yourself at, in bed at night with an emotion, as long as you are engaging the thoughts tied to it, well, those thoughts are like a labyrinth and they're just going to trigger it more and more. You don't, <laughs> yes. you, instead, you just let yourself feel the sensation and you label what you're feeling. Okay, now my heart rate's going up. You just be playfully labeling it. Okay, yeah, there's the blaming thought. There's the catastrophe thought. Yes. And when you're in that state of just simple labeling, you actually can fall asleep. So you're, you've risen above oh. to a higher level. Oh, that is practical. I bet yeah. every listener out there has laid awake at nights doing on emotions. Exactly. Yeah. There's. Uh, I have a podcast on the key to mastering sleep, which is all yes. about how to just stay in that zone. So that you're just lying there content with your eyes closed, not getting out of bed. And the emotions don't actually have to keep you stirred up. It's engaging the thoughts. 
One of the things that people need to know is whenever you're experiencing an emotion, you know, it's like, I feel like you betrayed me. Let's say someone says that. Yes. Well, that's really a, it's a, it's a complex thing. It's a thought, which is the feeling of hurt and the thought this person has betrayed me, but they're yes. very much as they say, I'm feeling, but really it's, it's like, they're not really, the feeling is one thing. The thought is another. If you focus on those thoughts, all the reasons why you think they betrayed you is you just, you enter the labyrinth and just stir everything up. If you instead focus on the sensation of the feeling momentarily, you can start to let it run its course. And you can just be accepting that you have the emotion. It makes sense. Emotions always make sense. They're never a mystery. Hmm. It makes sense you feel angry in this moment. It doesn't mean it's the best thing to do. It doesn't make, you know, it doesn't mean you should act on it, certainly. You know, the virtuous person never acts because of emotion, but they might act with emotion because emotions make sense. They're just part of what we carry with us. That's that's actually a good a good segue because I had wanted to ask a little bit about decision making. Mm-hmm. Usually we're we're confronted with decisions uh, at the time when we're feeling emotional. This makes me angry and so I want to lash out or this makes me scared, I want to f- fight or flee. You know, what what are some rules of thumb that we should should we just always avoid uh, doing anything if we feel an emotion or how, how should we navigate that? You know, do you have some guidelines? Yeah. So if you act on emotions, you're going to be more emotionally driven. So, and that's always, always going to be the case now, but we have to think of emotions, I think in one step higher in general, the real emotions, the powerful emotions in life, uh, they come from the bonds you have with other people. And emotions not only are a way for you to know what your system is detecting in fast speed, but it's a way you communicate to other people through bonds. You're going to have the strongest emotions with the people that you have the strongest bonds with. So whenever you get emotionally triggered, you can either act to satisfy yourself in that emotion or you can try to genuinely serve the bond and do what's best for the bond you have with the other and your love for that person. So that's where charity comes in as the guiding principle in light. Charity is not simply love. It's love with a bond. Mm. And so charity is not simply loving God. It's loving God and dwelling continually with him in the bond. So the bond ultimately is the Holy Spirit. He is the bond of charity who, d- who dwells in us whenever we love God with charity. So the bond is there, and that is ordinarily then the conduit of love and joy when you're with the, in the presence of the one that you're bonded with. Everything needs to be done to serve the bond. And that's really what I think. We have to sincerely seek what's best for the other, not just what satisfies us. And that means also what's best for the bond. So with emotions, I have heard that ultimately, in the end, every decision is made in emotions because of work with people whose emotion centers are blunted or gone in the brain. They have they can't choose between flavors of ice cream, what to do next in life. Is there any truth to that, that each decision in the end, after weighing data, is emotional? And if so, in what state of emotion should we make decisions? So... I think that in general, emotions tell us that there is a decision to be made that's important, but they don't tell us how to decide correctly. You need the light of deliberation to do that. And if the emotions have been shaped through a life of deliberation, they're better and better at indicating to you what's the right way of acting. Yeah, but that really requires a long process. If your dominant love in life is... God and others, those that you're closest to in the order of charity. So first your spouse, then your children, then your parents. It's, you know, I think that the order of the bonds is super important. If you get that order wrong, you're going to have grief and pain. And a lot of the emotional problems come because the bonds are not properly ordered. Spouses need to love each other more than the children. Right. You know, and, and, and then they, and they love God more than each other. So there needs to be a sense of order and love. And in that, when that's the case, then, you know, the love does actually help you to guide the decisions, right? 
So, but when you're acting for the sake of charity, you act in the wisest way, you act in the most deliberate way, but no one would say that that's emotional, but yet it is entirely guided by love. Guided by what, what would you say about, you know, I think some people, when they're faced with emotions, their goal is to blunt, just respond negatively to whatever they're feeling as a strategy of, of getting through life and not making a fool of themselves. Is that a good strategy or a bad strategy? It's understandable because emotions are uncomfortable, you know, the negative emotions especially. But yet if you give in to them, you're training yourself to give in to them more easily. So you're going to suffer more. Often, though, once you let yourself settle into the emotion, you realize even though it's uncomfortable, it's not actually painful. The more you let yourself feel it, the less it ends up staying. You equilibrate. And you need that. If you want to have equanimity, you have to give yourself opportunities to equilibrate. I mean, it can happen that, say, a person that you deeply love dies. Well, you have to let yourself feel the grief. You experience the grief not running from it. If you run from it, it chases you and it just sticks around unprocessed. Yeah, and it, and, but if you let yourself feel it, yes, it is it's not something you would want, but more and more it becomes bittersweet and it becomes a reminder of the person that you loved and the time you had together. So there are these, it rich is enriched. Those possibilities for enrichment all have to do with first you being able to accept what is. Kevin, that's a perfect place to stop with this first half of the interview. I can't wait to get back for more here on Dr. Doctor from the virtual studios of Redeemer Radio. Abortion. Pornography. Embryonic stem cell research. Corporate contributions to Planned Parenthood. Do you invest in companies that are engaged in these practices? The Ave Maria Mutual Funds do not, and their investment portfolios reflect that. Ave Maria Mutual Funds are managed to conform to pro-life and pro-family values. Long-term investors can invest in the no-load Ave Maria Mutual Funds. You can learn more about the Ave Maria Mutual Funds today at 866-AVE-MARIA or visit AveMariaFunds.com. And we're back with the second half of our interview with Kevin Majors. And now I want to ask him about something that's been bugging me for about a year. Last December, one of our other Dr. Doctor guests, Dr. Dominic Vashon, who heads Notre Dame Center for Compassionate Care and Medicine, mentioned that a significant, if not primary, cause of burnout, whether it's physicians, nurses, or even our daily lives, comes from something called empathic distress. It means a caregiver feels the emotions that someone who is suffering is feeling and can't recognize the difference between his own and the patient's emotions. Um, Kevin, is this a real thing? And if so, how prevalent is it? And what can we do about it for good? Well, I, it's, a, I think, an important topic uh, because empathy has different directions it can go. And we want empathy to bring out the best in us. And so really the question of empathic distress is, is what if empathy doesn't bring out the best in us? So I think that whether I can't really speak to whether or not it is uh, exactly um, the cause of burnout in physicians. I think there's a there's another school of thought with burnout that says it has more to do with systems yes. that actually treat like outcomes as absolutes. Right, and, and so it's all about physicians just attaining certain outcomes, and then they get, you know, they're they're um, that's intensely uh, devoid of meaning. I think that's very frustrating to just be thinking outcomes in medicine. Right. So, and we completely agree. We've covered burnout before. Systems yeah. have been the primary yeah. thing, but I think there is a, a a type of suffering. In fact, it's been referred to as compassion fatigue, also. So there is something here that we can help, whether or not it's the main cause of burnout, yeah. it affects relationships. Exactly. And I, so I think that when doctors get tired, they often will try to protect themselves from feeling pain. And empathic distress means you are not distinguishing the other person's pain from your own. And so it produces the strong urge to avoid and to not help. So, so empathic distress leads people to give up helping others. And I think that is a, something that does happen within, within burnout. So the alternate response is actually compassion, where you experience the other's pain as the other's. And you have then desire, you see in it automatically, the opportunity to bring them the joy of relief and recovery. 
So the desire to bring that joy to others becomes a powerful motive force, and that is compassion. So compassion is the right way to, you know, to, to, to use empathy. Now, what, okay, let's define a term empathy. Yeah. How would you define the term empathy? So it's most simple thing. It's just the shared experience of another's pain. Okay. So that you're aware, um, it's closely linked to this idea of uh, if it's done and you're not aware of it, then that's what we call emotional contagion where you start experiencing other people's emotions as your own. So it's just that it's a system we have in a very basic level uh, to mirror the emotional experiences of others as a way of understanding them. So, so it, it automatically happens. It we automatically happens. Exactly. It's like canned laughter in movies that everything <laughs> seems funnier. Yep. <laughs> exactly. So you, so this, that, that capacity for empathy is built into everyone. Uh, it is something that is honed the more you interact with people. And so with a lot of interactions, you get good at reading the emotions or not reading, because that makes it sound deliberate, of experiencing the emotions of other people as your own. Uh, it's part of how you build bonds with people. You can read their emotions, they can read yours, and the bond starts forming that you can work together. So how do we get to the point of recognizing when an emotion we're experiencing is really someone else's and it's holding us back from responding appropriately? So, exactly. And so that is completely a function of mindful awareness. The more mindful you are of your own emotions, which means the more able you are to simply experience them and accept them you know, for what they are and to feel the physical sensations of them in the present moment. Just your willingness to be like that with your own emotions gives you already a benefit, a side benefit, which is you can then better distinguish the emotions of others as well. And the better you are at even distinguishing your own emotions from each other. Is this anger? Is it fear? You know, or is it a kind of craving? What, what exactly am I feeling? The better you are distinguishing your own emotions, the better you are at then being aware of the emotions of others as other. When you're aware of the emotions of the other as their own, that opens up then the possibility of real compassion, which is you want to then join them in help in some way. If you don't, that leads to empathic distress, which is also called self-distress, where you experience their pain as yours and you want it to stop. It seems as though a lot of the things we're talking about ha have to do with a weakness of the distinction between self and other. Absolutely. What, what's the best way to build that up so that we don't have to think about it every time? If in gen, if your attitude towards your own emotions, when you get angry, you just accept that it's there and it's not going to be permanent and it doesn't have to shape it right now how you respond. And then gradually the anger runs its course. And then maybe when the blood flow returns to your prefrontal cortex after the anger passes, you can say, okay, there wasn't really much need to be angry there. Well, that would be the healthy thing. And next time it'd be easier. And the next time it'd be easier. The better you are at maintaining equilibrium when an emotion is present, it's better practice for the next time. It's going to be easier to have that emotion the next time. And so the, and the more accepting you are then of your own emotions without letting them take over, the more accepting you can be of the emotions of others. They, they are not something that have to be extinguished right away. You can simply feel it with them, stay present to them keep the bond strong and lend them your strength. And then so you kind of just stay calm and you, you know, I don't necessarily totally like the concept of validation uh, because many times it just means reassuring yourself or others or wanting reassurance. Like, oh, I really want my emotion validated, which means I want to <laughs> just be, I want to be reassured. And generally speaking, that doesn't help people to handle the emotion. It's still, they think validation will make it go away. So that desire for validation is like, oh, then it'll go away. That's actually no, not really accepted. Seeking it over and over and it never fulfills. Exactly. That's my experience. Exactly. So, it's a, it's and so like, with others, to have the sense of wanting to validate that means you know you let them know that you like understand. Instead of validation, I would talk about being understanding. The person should feel understood, that you're with them, you know you're resonating emotionally with them, but you also have, like, you can see a path forward where they this can bring out the best in them. So you go that from being understanding be, to being encouraging. Would that be something more like just labeling? So instead of saying, yeah, I'd be really angry too, 
you could say something like, I could see how that would make you really angry. Yeah, exactly. And that, or you say you like, you can help to normalize the emotion. Normalize, like, hell, that would make anyone, that would make me angry. Absolutely. Normalizing lets people be more accepting of it. You know, that'd be much better than the opposite. Like, what? You're angry at that? There's something wrong with you. Like, that would be, that wouldn't be helpful at all. <laughs> okay, Kevin, I think I'm pretty thick headed. I'm still not finding what could I do in the moment. Say, I have a patient who's really upset and I immediately feel really upset and get wrapped up into it and I can't be rational. What can I do in that moment, in that patient encounter to help get me out of this self other quagmire? Well, again, you have to go through the bond and ask yourself, what's the most loving thing you could do at that moment? So if, and if you don't have a clear idea, just let them feel felt. Let them like experience that you're with them in it. And then you could be helping them to be reframing it. To be encouraging for others means you're helping them to reframe their challenges as opportunities for growth. Oh, so, wait, wait, do that again. Say that again for the yeah, listeners. Exactly. So to, to be encouraging of others means you help them see how the challenge can bring out the best in them. How, in a sense, that they are, this is exactly the challenge that, that they're meant to face right now. And there is a way forward where it brings out the best. It may be painful uh, for the short run, but in the end, when we're wise, we'll be grateful for the challenges we faced. So okay, that's, you, yeah. You, you, okay, so that's the challenge part. What is the mindful awareness part for what I would do in the moment where I am stuck in empathic distress with a patient? What is the thing I should focus on? Not your own thoughts, not anything in your own head, even your own body but become transparent and experience the other person as genuinely as you can with a sense of curiosity and openness and compassion and be present to them. Ah, so if I experience them and their emotions actually with my reason, with my prefrontal cortex, I, as a byproduct, I may calm down, but I'll be focused on their good instead of getting rid of my bad emotions. And you said it right, focus on their good. You are there to help them attain a good that together you can attain. And so you want them to see what's the next best step. What is the good that you're going to help them now to strategize? So again, it's helping them with reframing. How can they respond in the best way to this challenge? Who do they know that responds well to this kind of challenge? Who would they want to be more like? But in the very room, you're probably the one that is modeling that for them. So I think you need to have a deep confidence that it's always possible for challenges to bring out the best in us. There's always a way of responding. And so, and to help them more sincerely seek that good rather than just making the bad go away. This is incredibly helpful. And because I'm one of the co-hosts, I get to ask a personal question. Maybe other mm -hmm. people experience this, but along this line, my family has observed it over years. We're watching a movie and there's a really uncomfortable emotional thing going on on screen. And it is so painful to me. I have to leave the room. Mm -hmm. What is going on there? Now, if there's an off air diagnosis, you're going to give me just fine. No, no. Is that at all related to this empathic distress thing? People who are empathic do feel more emotions when they're watching things in movies. So, and that can be wonderful practice. So it's interesting. In uh, Aquinas has one part where he's talking about um, the purpose of drama, and he says, <laughs> and he says the, the purpose. And he gets this from Aristotle. He says the purpose of drama is to train you in the praiseworthy emotions of pity and nemesis. So pity is your sadness at the sufferings of the innocent, and nemesis is your joy at the punishment of the wicked. <laughs> and when you think about like most television shows that we watch. He said that it's very praiseworthy to train people in pity and nemesis so that they, and so I think that that's actually what happens in these shows. It's all, it's all pretend. Yes. And so as long as you see these, the, 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 the things as pretend, you know, and these are actors portraying these situations, then it's, it is actually a chance to like go through experiencing the emotions and welcoming them and staying completely present as those emotions arrive. They actually, watching those things and accepting what comes without trying to run and make it stop 
would actually help you to be more empathic and present with patients. It's a good that thing. That was my next question. Yeah. Perfect. It's a good thing. I think that, and, um, you know, I think in these things where, where it's pretend, you know, there's, there's, I think there's no real fear, you know, that the, the, the pity and the nemesis are good passions to train. He thought they're actually the most necessary for the political order. Wow. Um, yeah. I distinguish that actually from things that have to do uh, with impurity, which can't yeah, actually yeah. be, can't actually be faked to actually yeah, portray no. it is to do it. And, and, oh, it's, and, and it's, the, it's the same with blasphemy, but purity, you know, those things actually to portray them is to commit them. So, but these other things where if it's, you know, fake violence, it's just fake violence. Fake no, it, it's, yeah. it's usually something awful happening to a character or he's making a bad decision. Yeah. He's going to suffer for it. Yeah. Those are the kind of things. I would see it as practice. That's a great chance to practice. Excellent. Just like, just like scary movies, you know, it can be a great chance to practice feeling fear and settling in and maintaining your equilibrium while you're feeling it. So it actually, it can be a great training for anxiety as well. Oh, Andrew, I've been hogging the questions here. What do you got? What do you really want to know from Kevin? No, no, I'm, I'm, I'm following along and I enjoy it. Actually, you know, one of the things that I think is on everybody's mind is, okay, I, I want to bring this home to, to myself and to the listeners you know, we've got the pandemic going on and everybody's emotions are running crazy. What are maybe maybe three takeaways that we could all go home and work on to na- navigate and negotiate through the stresses of, you know, people have been out of work or slow at work. Um, and then obviously the fear of the virus. And, you know, I, I can't tell you how many people have asked me, should I get together with my family at Christmas time? You know, so mm-hmm. what would be the best way to deal with our emotions in this time? Yeah, so I think I mean, by way of review of some of the things we've been talking about, uh, the, the first thing is to accept that emotions are normal, they make sense, and they're not disorders to be gotten rid of. There's nothing wrong with feeling any emotion ever. They always make sense. So that's the basic attitude of be willing to be accepting of it. And that's what it really means to be patient with it. You're just willing to suffer it for a time. So that's the first big lesson. I think the next one is learn how when you're triggered emotionally to be more curious about what you're feeling and whether it's simply in you or it's also in someone that you love or someone that you're in, that's in front of you. So you know, just to distinguish your own emotions, be curious about that, and then to be curious about what others are feeling too, and try to let yourself feel the emotions in them. But the third most important is that look through the emotions to how can you really build the bond with the people that, you, you know, that, that you're with. You know, because the best thing to have the healthiest emotional life is to have healthy bonds. Put first things first, put the highest bonds first, really prioritize the bonds in your life, the people in your life over any other outcomes or goods or things. The more sincere you are in doing that, the more simple your emotional life becomes. And this is your typical three things in other lingo, isn't it, Kevin? Step one, reframing. Step two, mindful awareness. Step three, accept the challenge or yeah. take a challenge. Yeah, is sorry. It? It's my mind always works in those same patterns. Oh, but that's good. No, yeah, it's good to exactly. have these kind of uh, matrices or whatever to, to use and apply yeah. them in multiple situations. Yeah. And it always, in my sense, it, it brings about the most thorough and complete progress. You address the attitude, you address your attention, and then you address your action. Attitude, attention, and action. Yeah, intellect, memory, and will. Ah, this is so good. How many people are there out there like you that combine psychiatry, Thomism, <laughs> the Catholic faith? I, I think it's beautiful. I hope there's an army of them. <laughs> <laughs> and you're training some at Harvard, aren't you? I hope I, you are. I am, yes. So I, I'm curious, do, do the young physicians, the medical students, do they find this information fascinating, life-giving, something they want to commit to promoting? Yeah, and, and I think this is partly why I actually created Optimal Work is as uh, and the Optimal Work podcast and YouTube channel so that you have like, I have a means of then spreading in a more systematic way, you know, the, the, uh, this, this approach to 
really it's it, it puts psychiatry and psychology um, in a way that just fits perfectly, you know, with higher meaning in life and ultimately, you know, the commitments of faith and, and, and love. I found it amazing that you could talk about the cloud of unknowing in one of your podcasts without mentioning uh, the Catholic Church or mm-hmm. even use the word saint. You mentioned John of the Cross. I read from saint. John of the Cross. Yeah, it's, it's I know a you beautiful did, you thing. Exactly. But I, I thought that was great because it shows how our faith, what we learn from it, really applies to everybody's quest for happiness. Yeah. And in a sense, you see that you know, if you see all events as coming from the hands of a loving Father God, you know, and who is holding everything right now in the present moment in being and then giving you all the grace you need to act, you know, you see that it would actually bring out the best in you in every single challenge in a way that any psychiatrist or psychologist would also admit is true. You know, that to see these things and ask, how could I be more loving? No one has a problem with that. Everyone would see the right. good in that. Right. I think so many times people, you know, that had... Um, maybe a tortured relationship with God that was all guilt-ridden. That's never been my experience of that. You know, and, and for them, they went to psychiatrists and the psychiatrist got the wrong idea. And they thought, okay, maybe you know, their faith is the problem. It's not. Uh, and when you see people living the faith in like the way it's meant to be lived, which is fully and joyfully and lovingly, then everyone sees that this does a great deal of good at you know, bringing mental health and emotional stability. Kevin, uh, remind listeners in our last couple of minutes how they can find your podcasts, which are also mm-hmm. video. So the podcast is searchable on, on iTunes or Spotify or anywhere. It's called The Golden Hour. And you'll see my name, too. I think you can also search with my name, Majors. Um, and then on YouTube, there is a channel, uh, Optimal Work. So you just do a search for Optimal Work and the channel comes up. And uh, yeah, I encourage people to subscribe and to leave comments. And you can always send me an email. It's just admin at optimwork.com with questions you would like addressed in podcasts or experiences that you have. In our last podcast, we actually went through an email someone had sent and then we gave our advice and then we had given them the same advice and they replied with the effect of the advice. I thought that was very neat. No, so we got to have cool. that all within one. I love doing that kind of thing, helping people and then yes. showing that to others to, so you know, just they can see in fact, this does work and they can relate to what the other people are. Wondering. Is that your greatest professional source of joy? Um, absolutely. I mean, helping people in work, it's not just helping them overcome anxiety, but it's actually optimizing their ability to like to really thrive on challenges. And so and so to and to develop new creative strategies. So you're really helping people to grow in a real way, not just like an imaginary way. But you're, Kevin, you're really shaping life. Yeah. Thank you so much for being thank with us for another right. episode. Thank I know you. that we're going to have uh, listeners beating down the doors to listen to this one on the podcast. God bless you. Thanks for being part of Dr. Doctor. Great. Good to talk to you both. Take care. And we're back with Dr. Doctor and the answer to the medical trivia question. Yeah, we talked about this rare disease, uh, urbach weath disease, where people get these weird bumps on their skin and their eyelids, but a part of their brain can calcify, specifically the amygdala. And in people where this happens, they can no longer experience a particular emotion. What emotion is it? Andrew, did you know the answer to this before? I I had never heard of the disease, but with the uh, amygdala, I was kind of suspicious that it was fear. And fear it is because uh, the amygdala is your your threat detector, your fear center. And Kevin talked about it in this show. And, and you know, I've read in a number of books of, of psychology about, you know, a patient, uh, specifically one they've done research in that since childhood could not experience uh, fear. Uh, when she plays, you know, risky economic games, she just takes huge risks, not afraid of losing money. Uh, people have tried to frighten her. They're unable to. The scariest horror films of every time, uh, handling large spiders and snakes, taking her to a haunted house. But interestingly, they finally figured out a way to make people with this disease afraid. Oh, really? It was fascinating. Get them to breathe carbon dioxide, and they start to feel suffocation. And when they did this experiment with her after 16 years of never experiencing fear, 
She said it was the worst thing she had ever gone through that she could remember. Oh, I can only imagine if you've, you've never felt fear or been sensitized to it, you know, that that's pretty bad. All of a sudden. So, Andrew, what are your top three takeaways from Kevin's episode? You know, Ke- Kevin is always so great. And um, one of the things that I, I'm always thinking about is, okay, how do we take this home into daily life? So the top three would be his, it's kind of his model for dealing with a lot of things in life. You know, the, the first step is to kind of accept what you're feeling and go ahead and feel those emotions and just accept that they're there. Uh, not feeling guilty about it or, or reading too much into it. But then after you accept them, the second step is to be mindful of what you're feeling and, and even kind of curious. Okay, I, my heart rate's going up. I'm starting to sweat and and just observing those and not getting wrapped up into it. And then ultimately the third step is accepting the challenge of charity and, and how I can use these emotions to work towards the good of others. And so those those would be kind of the top three, not necessarily data points, but that seems like the kind of process he always goes back to when when dealing with you know any kind of psychological stressors. I, it's just so practical. And I highly recommend his podcasts are short. They're like 15 to 18 minutes each. And you can listen at 1.5x, which makes them 50%, you know, one third or two thirds the length they would be otherwise. So please go to optimalwork.com, listen to the Golden Hour podcast. But thank you for listening to our episode of Dr. Doctor, the award-winning radio program and podcast of the Catholic Medical Association. We come to you from the virtual studios of Redeemer Radio on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Yes, and please share the good news of Dr. Doctor with a friend and invite them to listen on their favorite podcast app. And be sure to rate and review our show to help new listeners find us. Be sure to tune in next week for your appointment with Dr. Doctor. This is Dr. Tom McGovern and Dr. Andrew Mullally signing off until your next dose of Dr. Doctor. Dr. Doctor is the official radio program of the Catholic Medical Association, whose members are dedicated to upholding the principles of the Catholic faith in the science and practice of medicine. The views expressed on Dr. Doctor do not necessarily represent those of your co-hosts or the Catholic Medical Association. Find our past episodes and keep up with the latest from Dr. Doctor by subscribing in your favorite podcast app and following us on Facebook. Get links to follow and subscribe or submit a question for our doctors by texting the word DOCTOR to the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598 or visit RedeemerRadio.com slash doctor.